Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new episode of Stories from Space Podcast, where your host, Matthew Williams, examines the history of human spaceflight, the breakthroughs that revolutionized our understanding of the universe and our place in it, and the brave individuals who work tirelessly to advance the frontiers of our understanding. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. The authors acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen peoples. Good morning, and welcome back to Stories from Space. I'm your humble narrator, Matt Williams. So today, I wanted to talk about something rather important and something that is on my mind pretty much all the time, because it is the reason why I write. And it has to do with this century. The 21st century is, I will argue, the most important century in human history. And I got a chance to talk about this recently with the Intersection of Technology and Society podcast. And it was also the subject of an interview I did with uh, John Michael Godier's Event Horizon. So it's something I will talk about any chance I get. Now, the reason why this, uh, this century is the most important in our history is simply because it is this century in which we are going to face an existential crisis, and one might even say a crucible, which is going to determine the future of humanity, where we are going to see two forces there, two anthropogenic forces compete for possession of our future, of our soul, and depending on which one wins, depending on uh, which side of this prevails, we're either destined for a future in which human civilization will collapse, almost certainly, and it's uncertain if if it will ever recover, or it will be destined for a future of post-scarcity and most likely living in space and becoming interplanetary, maybe even interstellar. And so these forces that I'm referring to are climate change on the one hand and uh, technological change on the other. I first really became fascinated with this probably around just shy of 2010. For a long time, I'd been an aspiring science fiction writer. I'd always been fascinated with the future and how, how as human beings, we portray the future. Classic science fiction's greatest motif for me was how did people predict the future based on the time they lived in and how close were they? Esteemed science fiction writer, William Gibson, he had said once that all science fiction is about the time period in which it was written. And he was absolutely right. And it it actually echoed uh, something a friend of mine had said years before that. He said that, you know, science fiction is not so much a genre as it is a vehicle to make points about, um, human civilization, human history, human culture. And I put that down as one of the most intelligent things I'd I'd ever heard in my life. It all comes down to how we perceive ourselves at any given time and how that changes over time. In any case, I spent uh, the next several years trying to learn as much as I could about the world today and where we're going. And eventually I I came upon a, a a great body of literature about climate change and how, in fact, uh, many of the brightest minds in the world today, ranging from the scientific community to the journalistic community and even military planners and economists, how they all were 
taking uh, very seriously the projections of about climate change and how this was going to have an effect on global populations, resources, and uh, how the prospect of ecological collapse in certain areas of the world and extreme weather events and all the other signs of a changing planet and global warming, how these would ultimately impact society, how it would impact us as a, a global community. And it was very fascinating. It was rather dire. And that's something that I've continued to pursue there in terms of uh, researching the climate science and reporting on it. It comes with the job now that I'm a science communicator. And one thing that I keep coming back to with it is the idea that, well, the changes we're going to see in the, and the changes that we need to make to avert the worst case scenarios, they're going to come to a head around mid-century. And if we don't get our act together by then, we will be looking at the much worst case scenarios. Otherwise, it's like anything we do at this point, it's pretty much guaranteed that things are going to get worse before they get better. But then with the right kind of strategies, things will get better. And by 2100, we'll be coming out the other side of that crucible and we may be destined for a very bright future. So that's where the other major force for change there, technological change, uh, it came up while I was researching all this. And it was about 2000 and 2011, 2012 that I came upon another great body of literature. My friend Luke, actually, he recommended this. He was deep into learning about technological change in society. And I had heard about the technological singularity, but he was the one who really opened me up to it there. And I began reading the writings of uh, von Neumann, Kurzweil, Peter Diamandis, key futurist thinkers and what they had to say. And I learned how, how far back yeah, this, this concept went. And for those who aren't familiar, the idea is that um, at some point in the near future, humanity is going to uh, reach a point of what's called singularity or inflection where um, the rapid and exponential advancement of computing and robotics and nanotechnology and biotechnology and all of these things that have been have been uh, rapidly advancing for some time now, um, they're going to to reach a point where the rate of progress will become immeasurable because since it's subject to acceleration, eventually it uh, it reaches a point there where, it's now progressing faster than you can possibly measure it. And the way Ray Kurzweil describes this is the law of accelerating returns. It's like for every new technological innovation you make, the time it takes for the next one to come is that much shorter because the process is incredibly um, iterative. You, you make tools, you use those to design better tools and those to design better tools and so on. So. At each point in your in the whole evolutionary development of, of humanity, yeah, the tools that we used um, to make our lives easier were then then became the basis for the next uh, set of tools that we developed to make our lives easier. Now, it's this is hardly a naive predicament that oh things are only going to get better and better because of this progress. No, it's actually. Uh, it's actually very, very fascinating because it too indicates that our lives are going to be incredibly disrupted by all the, the rate at which new innovations come. And this is something we see in the world today, the whole idea of the disruption economy. It's, 
It's on the tips of our tongue. People are using the, the language of it. That's stuff that was uh, predicted um, as much as a, a century ago. And so the prospect for this is, well, with all this disruption, all this change, we could be destined for a future in which we'll be dealing with post-scarcity economics. Um, actual currency won't be necessary anymore. We already see this with uh, cryptocurrency. Um, and that is to say actual currency in the sense of uh, nothing that's tied to any particular bank or institution or resource. It is strictly tied to data and um, public faith, public opinion, and content creation. And that we will uh, abandon modes of centralized economic behavior and find ourselves in a new age of the uh, Rachel Botsman called it the sharing economy or the uh, or the trust economy and collaborative consumption is another word for it. There, just the the direct peer to peer uh, sharing and exchanging of resources and and uh, direct marketing. And again, we see this happening today with uh, not just uh, cryptocurrencies or Airbnb or ride-sharing programs. It's it's everywhere. It's and it's going to continue to be that way. And it's something that no central bank or you know economic ministry um, can predict or control fully. So again, one thing I found that was very, very interesting about all this, it's like, so all these predictions about when this singularity or this uh, explosion is going to happen where things are, are just going to uh, take off and, and suddenly uh, we'll be able to do things we never could do before. The future will be limitless and you can't even possibly imagine what it is. The smart money on that is uh, that this will be happening around mid-century again. That's not something you can ever pin down, um, the same as climate change. You can't pin it down to a single year or time, but that, yeah, just the progression um, will will hit a point there by about mid-century where it's clear that life is never going to be the same again. Um so depending on, on what we do, how we play our cards, right? Um, beyond 2050, it's that uh, basically human civilization will be going down one of two paths. Either we will uh, be dealing with uh, ecological collapse, mass migrations, shortages, um, and uh, just the constant, constant impacts of uh, rising temperatures, increasing prevalence of diseases, flooding, etc. We're essentially going to be yeah, going down uh, the road towards collapse and scarcity and death. Uh, on the other hand, the other route, if we manage to get our act together and uh, really leverage the technological advances we're going to have at our disposal and the opportunities for uh, you know innovation uh, that are, will be unlike anything ever before, um, then we could be heading down towards, uh, we could be heading off on the path towards, you know, post-singularity world and economy and so forth. But uh, ultimately, as uh, as we've seen, you know, with developing trends and whatnot, between now and 2050 and, and even beyond, humanity is going to be pulled in two directions at once by these completely 
opposing forces there. They're both anthropogenic. They're both subject to acceleration and feedback loops. And, um, yeah, they promise entirely different futures. So I was very fascinated by that. The realization that both of these uh, trends, how interrelated they were. And that's kind of obvious when you think about it. It's like climate change is the direct result of human uh, industry and uh, our population growth and everything that drives technological growth has always been increasing our impact on the planet. And it was only really since the industrial era that we began to notice this. Um, not only did a lot of, uh, were there a lot of early voices who said this kind of living is unsustainable. We can't just keep chopping down all the forests, uh, mining the coal, shoving it into the, uh, you know, the, the engines and the locomotives and, and, uh, expanding our railway networks, building industries in the inner cities and, uh, and basically polluting and toxifying, uh, the nature, the surrounding environment that we live on. There were many early voices who warned about this and how it just simply wasn't sustainable. At the same time, there were many voices that noticed the rate of change is increasing and it continues to increase. The impact it's having on society is just undeniable and impossible not to notice. And yeah, the people were both uh, optimistic on the one hand or, or pessimistic on the other about it. But the point is they were they were seeing it. And today, yeah, these forces are undeniable, and we we understand the the rate of change has been accelerating for a long time, and it continues to accelerate now. And it was only in times past that, because the rate of change was not fast enough to happen within a single person's lifetime, that yeah, few people really noticed. Um, but now it's undeniable, and in the very term future shock. Um, is it refers to this, right? We're seeing the we're seeing the future in our own lifetimes. There, the world we grew up in is no longer here. By the time we hit a certain age, we're dealing with uh, trends, technologies, and uh, a world that does not resemble at all the the world we <laughs> spent our formative years in. So, for me, um, this has always been the challenge as a science fiction writer. How do you capture that? How do you capture this trend, which is very much going on in the world today, and portray it in, you know, in, in contexts and in, in uh, scenarios and settings down the road? And for the first books that I've actually published, the uh, the Formus series, that takes place in the far future, and I'd love to. It, it combined all this. Uh, work and speculation that uh, that I was uh, exposed to, um, that I researched, I should say, for the past several years, it combined that with my other love and my day job, which is uh, uh, writing about space and astronomy and uh, science and, and basically being a science communicator and space journalist. Um, in fact, I, I, I know exactly, I can recall exactly when I wrote an article that inspired the forum series and got me thinking in terms of how are human beings going to live off world. But, um, for anyone who's, who's read these books, um, one of the key elements that I really, I, I, I made a huge effort to include it and it was, you know, possibly, uh, even, uh, too included there. It was, uh, 
yeah, I kind of felt like at times I'm, I'm hitting people over the head with this, um, this uh, idea, this, uh, this focus. It was on how humanity got there. It's like we've achieved interplanetary living, um, uh, the inner solar system, right? The people who live there are, uh, they're living in a post-singularity uh, world. The people who migrated to the outer solar system are actually going out there to escape it. And there is a resource economy where, yeah, resources are coming from the outer solar system to the inner solar system to, you know, uh, basically maintain their uh, their high advanced level of living. Um, and the and the disparity is a major focus in in the series there. But yeah, the the point of that was. Uh, how did they get to that point? And it it was explained uh, in the early chapters there. Uh, like I said, I was worried I was uh, sort of leaning on it too hard, but it was explained that, yeah, humans began to leave Earth in the 21st century when it was commercially feasible and logistically feasible to do so because they were concerned about, you know, ecological collapse and the planet going to hell. And I, I felt I was a, maybe a little optimistic there because um, in the story I wrote, humanity did get its act together. So 2050 and after, the world began to recover. Um, populations were leveling off. It wasn't until 2100 that it seemed like, okay, we're, you know, we're, uh, we're well on our way to being in the clear. Everything from this point onward is recovery, right? Um, so in other words, yeah, things got worse before they got better, but then they did get better. And at that point onward, it's like, well, now we're left with a constantly changing world, um, because the singularity is here. Um, and something I didn't mention earlier, one of the predictions there is yes, the explosion in learning, which is, uh, uh due to artificial intelligence and the possibility of neurological enhancement. Right, merging the human brain with implants and uh, all kinds of uh, neat little uh, things that will allow for, basically, that'll allow for us to be smarter, so that we're not ultimately usurped or replaced by artificial intelligence. And um, yeah, from that point onward in the story, it's like, well, now people were leaving Earth to escape that, because the disruption to daily lives. It was, it, it was huge. Um, yeah, people now had to augment themselves just to remain competitive or relevant. And that is uh, a, major, um, uh, a major fear that has been brought up with the whole idea of uh, the technological singularity and bioenhancement and so forth. It's going to create a divide. And over time, as money becomes increasingly you know, useless in a post-scarcity economy, it's like more and more people are able to get augmentations and enhancements and so forth. So there will come a time when there's a tipping point and more people are enhanced and are uh, what could be described as transhuman other than, uh, than are not. So yeah, the population of Earth, according to some futurist predictions, that it's going to be more people will be you know, cybernetically enhanced um, by uh, a certain point after 2100, I think. But yeah, it, it will increase gradually, but it will be a while before, possibly 22nd century or even after, before such people become the majority. But when they do, 
what is going to happen to all the people who are just simple, organic, you know, homegrown uh, babies with no uh, no electrodes, no wetware, no implants, no nothing? And yeah, that too has been explored at length in, in literature and elsewhere. It's like they're going to basically want to go somewhere, whether it's compounds or communities that are off the grid on Earth or quite likely because of just how overcrowded and overpopulated the planet will be by this time, um, they're likely to migrate away from Earth. If, in fact, that is an option. Yeah, it would definitely be taken. Um, anyway, I've, this, uh, this is what went into... This is what I've been focusing on with my writing. It's certainly what has gone into anything I've published so far. But, um, yeah... It's, uh, I don't want to make this all about uh, the books I've written there. Um, it is more, you know, a, a deep and burning curiosity for me. What is the near future and the, the not-so-distant future and distant future going to look like based on these trends that we see happening today? And the way I see it, this century is the most important in human history because how that plays out. Uh, what direction we take and how uh, all the changes that uh, are likely to happen, um, they will be played out for centuries to come. I think that humanity by the year 2500 will look back um, and, and, and either think, yeah, where did it all go wrong? Where exactly did we fail to prevent the, the worst from happening and ended up here, or they'll think, yeah, we, we managed to prevent the worst from happening, we survived that, but now we're dealing with the implications of <laughs> of our runaway progress. We can live sustainably with uh, planet Earth and the other planets in the solar system, but uh, yeah, the future is incredibly uncertain. Do we go further, do we go beyond, or do we stay here? Um, and that, of course, is something that I think is incredibly relevant to any, any picture we have of the future. It's that progress, a very loaded term, for better or for worse, right? It is not linear. It is exponential. So we, we are not going to solve the problems that we have merely by miraculous technological innovation. We're, we'll actually be able to solve many problems and do things we could only previously imagined, but we're still going to be human. And even if we're augmented humans, we're still going to be struggling with uh, <laughs> basically the burdens of our intelligence, the burdens of our constant need to, to question. And um, yeah, it's, that is a, a whole nother topic there, really, but it is uh, that too is a rich and richly explored idea. The fact that we have this cerebral sack that allows us to to question and learn, and it, it is like it, it's a blessing and a curse because it's always yeah we're forced to carry it around and and uh, at the same time still have our lizard brains and our mammalian brains and our and our instincts and drives and yeah it, it's uncertain if there's some sort of culmination or deliverance from all that, or if we're just uh, going to be forced to relive and redo the same, the same battles, the same struggles 
over and over and over again, just on a different scale in a different in a different context. Ah, yep, these are the burning questions that <laughs> that uh, sometimes keep me up at night, but are always uh, lighting a fire in my brain there and motivating me to write more. Whew. Well. That was, uh, yeah, my summary on why the 21st century is going to be the most important in human history. And above all else, I'd say this goes without saying, but I have to say it anyway. I really hope we survive this. There are existential threats uh, that still abound, whether they are nuclear war. Um, we see that in the situation with uh, Russia and Ukraine today, the fear that uh, that could escalate to something nuclear, and all the while, um, climate change and the impacts it's going to have. And interestingly enough, the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine, that coincided with uh, the release of uh, the IPCC's, uh, the Sixth Assessment Report, and the IPCC's, the Inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And as I was saying to a colleague, yeah, the war has sort of overshadowed the release of this document, which is telling us the exactly the kind of existential crisis we're going to be facing between now, 2050, 2100. Yeah, and, but nevertheless, the war has managed to focus attention back on our dependence upon fossil fuels and the destructive nature of these very things, not just in terms of environmental destruction, but how they finance war and how uh, breaking free of them is essential to, uh, well, a lot of ways, crippling the, uh, the machinery of warfare, regardless of who's wielding it. That, that too, that is a whole nother... <laughs> That's a whole nother podcast, a whole nother subject worth exploring there. So, thank you for listening. This has been Stories from Space. I'm Matt Williams. Stay tuned and thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories from Space podcast with Matthew Williams. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.